0: Well, good morning. My name is Matt. I'm here, the senior pastor here at Bible Center Church. I want to welcome you here with us today. A few times a year, our elders and our pastors will encourage me to get away, to recharge my batteries, and come back strong for the weeks and months ahead. And so I'm not with you in person today, but I am with you in spirit. And I did want to send a message through this video to invite you to two things coming up. Uh, one, I'd like to invite you to our series that begins next Sunday entitled, Ouch! healing from hard religion. Uh, Appalachia is a great place uh, to live. I grew up here, right here in Charleston and nearby St. Albans. Uh, But Appalachia can also be a garden for legalism. Maybe you grew up in a church scenario or a religious setting where uh, you felt as though you had to do more good works for God to like you more. Or maybe you even felt like you had to earn the love of God. Uh, Maybe you felt as though church and Christianity wasn't so much good news, but you thought at first it was bad news. And so many of you have the question, how do we heal from that? Can we ever fully recover uh, from that type of a perspective of God? And the answer is absolutely yes. The Bible has words of hope woven throughout But we're going to look throughout the month of February at four verses in Romans chapter 16 and see how to heal from hard religion. Hope you'll join us for the beginning of that series uh, next Sunday. Also want to invite you to pick up a book. Uh, I'm excited about this book, When God Sings, written by one of our own pastors, Pastor Bill Tanzi, right here at Bible Center Church. Uh, Pastor Tanzi is the first current pastor of all of our pastoral staff To have a book published, the first of many, and I'm encouraged and excited to be able to recommend this book to you today. It's based upon Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17. Not a book that we read much, but a verse that's changed my life. I keep this verse on the front of my smartphone as my wallpaper. But Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God, in your midst, He is mighty to save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. And he will exult over you with loud singing. Our God loves you more than you can ever imagine. And because of Jesus, he sees us and sings and rejoices over us. So let me invite you this morning, as Pastor Tanzi comes to preach and as the scriptures are read, not only to pre order the book out in the gathering space after the service. But also to ask God to give you an image of Himself
1: that will change your life forever. Good morning. My name is Andrew Jones, and I have been attending Bible Center Church for five years now. And in that time, I have been humbled and blessed to serve in youth ministries, GO teams, the audio, video, and lighting ministry, and I'm currently one of your church deacons. Please turn in your Bibles, or your Bible apps, to Zephaniah, chapter three, verses 14 through 17, and this morning we will be reading from the ESV translation. If you are able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
2: Thank you, Andrew. God bless you. Allow me to add my welcome to all the welcomes you've heard today. And this morning, we're going to do a little memory exercise before I launch into this message. And that memory exercise will ask you to do this. Imagine that we're in the world's largest small group here this morning, so you can just be yourself, okay? And I'm going to bring up on the screen some fads that you may remember from your distant or remote memory And I'm going to ask you if you remember these fads to raise your hand, okay? Now, let's look at the first one. Who remembers this fad? Who remembers cabbage pastels? Raise your hands. Okay, you may lower your hands. Now, who here ever had a cabbage pastel in their home? Look at the hands. Ah, I see that. I'm told that these little chubby bundles of joy are making a comeback to to the stores around Charleston. So if you don't have one, you can get one to to, uh, add in your home. Now, let's look at the second one. Who here remembers lava lamps? Remember lava lamps? Oh, look at the hands. Now you can lower your hands. Who here had a lava lamp in their college dorm or maybe in their bedroom? Now, I won't ask, but I know that some of you men still have a lava lamp in your man cave. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll understand that because lava lamps generate a lot of love when you see those little beautiful gels coming up. Vertically toward, uh, toward the top of the lava lamp. Here's the third one. Who remembers this one? Who remembers big hair, ladies? Who remembers? Now, ladies, how many of you ladies had big hair? Raise your hand. Now, if you'll notice, our model there is none, over th- none other than our own Dr. Robin Darnell from our church congregation who said she was willing to put herself through this punishment because she loves Bible Center Church. So that's big hair. Now let's look at one more. Who remembers the leisure suit? You remember the leisure suit? Raise your hand if you did. Now, men, if you own one of these, be brave enough to raise your hand. Our graphic artist, uh, Rosalind D., helped me find some of these pictures. And she said, you know, Pastor? That's the first leisure suit I ever saw, and I hope it's the last one that I ever see as well. <laughs> well, fads and fashions come and go. Uh, marketing experts tell us that a fad will last just about three seasons, about three years before a, a fad will come. It will, it will kind of uh, uh, arrive on the scene, and then it will disappear. I want to men- mention something to you today that never ever changes. If there's one absolute in our lives that never goes out of style, it's God's word. God's word, despite the fact that it is an ancient document, never changes. It stands the test of time. And one of the most characteristic features of the Bible is that it never goes out of style. Now, fads and trends will come and go, But God's word stays forever. What do I mean by that? This ancient document that you have on your knee or on your Bible app there, on your phone app, this ancient document holds the truth with a capital T, the truth for our lives in this modern, fast-paced society that we live in today. Despite the fact that it was written thousands of years ago. That's what makes the Bible different from everything else. You can see things come and go. You can see things that are popular today and gone tomorrow. But the Word of God stands the test forever. Well, such is the case with an often neglected book toward the end of your Old Testament, the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah, not Zechariah, but Zephaniah toward the end of your Old Testament. It is one of the 66 books of the canon of Scripture, and it, congregation, is as alive today as it was the day it was written. Now, we live in a postmodern world of ever-changing progress and lightning fast communication, a, a, a earth-flattening internet that, that we have where things grow stale quickly. Yet this morning, we're going to examine a passage from this book of Zephaniah, get this, that was written 2,500 years ago. It's amazing. This inspired book is a treasure trove for modern 21st century Christians to dig into and to get truths that help us as we navigate through these challenging lives that we're navigating through. Now, it's a it's about history, it's about the present, and it's also a, about the future. And there's something else I want to mention to you about this book. This book of Zephaniah contains the most important concept in the Bible. The most important concept in the Bible. Now, that's quite a claim, isn't it? And without this, without knowing this concept, you can't have consistent victory over sin. You'll struggle with guilt and doubts. You'll lack joy. Let me be clear, first of all, that the most important story of the Bible, not the concept, but the most important story of the Bible is the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God that begins in Genesis right through Revelation when he returns as the line of Judah. That's the story of the Bible, but this concept is called grace. And this grace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's found through him, it's God's amazing and incredible expression of his unconditional love for us despite us, despite what we've done. So here's the backstory. There was a brave prophet by the name of Zephaniah. He brings a scathing prophecy to Judah. Remember, there were two kingdoms, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Israel had already declined to the point of nothingness. So here comes Zephaniah. He's often called the lamplighter, comparing him to one that would carry a lamp through the darkened streets of Jerusalem. And he brings a horrible message of doom and gloom to God's people. It's a scathing prophecy that that tells them that the jig is up. You've gone too far. You've messed up too much. It's a rather short book. It contains only three chapters, 53 verses in total. You can read it this afternoon in a short reading. It's a short book, but it's long on message. Now, here's the skinny of what happens in this book. God's chastises his people for rebelling against them for engaging in the worst wickedness that you and I might imagine and then he calls them to repentance and then he threatens them with knee-knocking judgment and then he announces to them a great expression of that grace that I mentioned earlier in this message. Grace is a New Testament concept But once in a while in the Old Testament, you'll see a sliver of grace, New Testament grace, found with God's people in the Old Testament. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So he he brings a message that no one wants to hear. Our brains don't want to hear bad news. We, We have a sense of wanting to reject hearing bad news. And there wasn't anything positive at all as he begins his message, it wasn't welcomed. No one likes to hear what he had to say. It sounds like, as you read it, it sounds like a doomsday scenario. It's a condemning indictment against their crimes. It's the kind, if you read it aloud, it sounds like an indictment that you would hear down at the federal or the county courthouse that's read aloud for the world to hear. With charge after charge after charge of what God's people had done. One withering criticism after another, one body blow after another. It's one of the most painful books in the Bible to read. But it has good news that I'm going to share with you here soon. So these Hebrews were guilty on all charges. Now there's two kinds of guilt. The first kind of guilt is a guilt that we experience that we shouldn't. Guilt that, that we carry around even though God's forgiven us for our sins. That is unnecessary guilt. That's false guilt. But then there's accurate guilt. And accurate guilt is when we're carrying around guilt for our sins that needs to be taken care of through the blood of Jesus Christ. And they were carrying around the second kind of guilt. They they were carrying around the guilt that when they heard Zephaniah's words, they knew down deep, I knew this day would come. I knew we couldn't carry on like this the way we've done. And it happened in Jerusalem of all places where Zephaniah comes. Jerusalem is the shining city of God where God's chosen people had rebelled and they had taken up with their neighbors, the Canaanites, in practicing the worst sins imaginable. It's as if you couldn't detect the Hebrews, the children of God, from the idol-worshiping Canaanites. They had sort of morphed into into one one being, and they, they practiced their Canaanite wickedness. They embraced the idolatry. They embraced all the violence that the Canaanites brought to them. They joined the pagans in denouncing God. They denounced Yahweh. They said, we no longer want to hear from him. And it happened in Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem means possession of peace, and it wasn't a very peaceful place. It was a place where people were at war with themselves and at war with God. So the people of the one true God were caught up in all this evil. Now, they began worshiping the chief god of the Canaanites, Baal, we'll call him Baal, who had a pantheon of lesser gods that descended down from him. He is called the master. He is called the lord of the flies. He is called the master god who is the chief god of the Canaanites that they were worshiping. The people of God were right there doing their best to be the most loud worshipers of Baal and all these sexual gods and goddesses that descended down from him. You might ask, well, how could that happen? Where was the leadership in this theocracy that God had established through a king? Well, seated on the throne when Zephaniah was born was a toad of a man by the name of King Manasseh. Remember that name, Manasseh. He's widely considered by many Bible scholars to be the most wicked king found in the Bible. And his actions justify that. He he and his minions were the taproot of all this corruption. There was no satisfaction to Manasseh's ravenous appetite for evil. This cat put the E in evil. He was the worst of the worst. He was a hedonist of the lowest order. On the screen you're going to see a less than flattering biography from 2 Kings, of of our friend Manasseh, it said this, it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places, those high places were places of worship where they tried to attract the attention of their gods. That Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed and re- erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, in which the Lord had said, "In Jerusalem I will put my name." And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son. As an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers, he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him, meaning God, to anger. That's who Manasseh was. That's who was in charge of all this. There were no limits to his, to his wickedness, his sexual pleasures, witchcraft and sorcery, and conjuring up the spirits of the dead. Uh, Later on in, in verse 16 of that passage, it said, He shed so much blood in Jerusalem that Jerusalem was filled with blood from one end to the other. That's who Manasseh was. That's who the leader was. And I'm sorry to say that in God's word, it's recorded that Manasseh engaged in the worst of all sins. He took his very son and he placed his son into the fires of Molech, the fire god sacrificing his own son to the idols. And the people of God followed their leader like a bunch of blind mice. They followed him wherever he took them, stiff-arming God, rebelling against God, and embracing the evil. But the good news is that's all going to change. It's interesting that human nature doesn't change. There is a temptation to diminish God and to live as if there's no ramifications for our behaviors. Dr. Tim Keller says this, he says, The human heart takes even good things, even good things, like a successful career, love, possessions, and even family, and turns them into ultimate and even deified things. Well, turn with me to chapter 1, and we'll just do a flyover here. We'll just get a sample of the sins that they engaged in. I know it isn't pleasant reading, but we have a purpose here toward the end of the book that's going to allow the light of the grace shine through this powerful book. If you'll turn with me at, in chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 4 and just read a few, a few um, verses. God speaking in the first person says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal in the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priests, Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of heaven of the heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord. And yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated His guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. And it goes on in that passage to describe how God was well aware of their sins. And now he's saying things are going to change. He said to them in verse 4, he said, I know my my own children, the apple of my eye, my chosen people have been adopted by Baal. And then verse 5, he says, They're worshiping the stars, the very stars that God created, creations that speak to the creative power of our God. They began worshiping the stars themselves. Verse 6 said they turned their backs on God and they had uh, plundered the homes of the innocent. In verse 9, isn't it interesting? That when wickedness prospers the innocent suffer and that's what he talks about in verse 9 and then later on in verse 11 which I didn't read he said "You've, you've cheated others for unjust gain now turn with me to chapter 3 we'll just see a few more and in chapter 3 we'll just look at the first four verses woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city she listens to no voice she accepts no criticism she does not trust in the Lord She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Jerusalem was in a mess. It was a place of crime and violence. They didn't want to hear God's correction. They'd gotten into bed with the criminal judges and had followed lying prophets They had actually gone into the temple of God and polluted the temple of God with idol worship. And in verse 5 of chapter 3, it said they had no shame. They had lost their shame. Jeremiah was a a contemporary of Zephaniah. He spoke to these same people in chapter 6, verse 15 of his book. He said, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? They don't even know how to blush. That's how bad it was. Jerusalem was a total mess. And Judah followed Jerusalem, the capital city. So every time I read the first two and a half chapters of this book, I grimace a little bit. I grimace and I'm shocked that it happened in the city of God. It happened in Jerusalem. God adorned Jerusalem itself. It is the epicenter of the world. It was established by God himself through King David. It was to be a faithful and holy city. It was to be a city of righteousness. When Solomon built the temple, where did he build it? Jerusalem. It was God's city. When the mighty prophet Ezekiel spoke of Jerusalem, you know what he said? The Lord is there. That was God's city. When they needed to bring the Ark of the Covenant Out, where did they bring it to? To Jerusalem. It's the place where Jesus Christ cried over, and it's the place where he will return, and he'll set up the capital of his earthly kingdom. And God says, this isn't going to be tolerated anymore. So in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I'm going to sweep away everything. I'm going to stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Judah. And finally, in verse 4, he says, just be quiet, be silent. And he talks about the extent of it. He says, I'm going to search Jerusalem with lamps. He say, what's, what's he saying to all this? He says, there's a day of wrath that's coming because of what, you, what you've done. God intended to cut off every trace of Baal worship from that place. Now, does anyone here remember hearing this, this phrase, this sentence? You just wait till your father comes home. Anyone remember that? Well, that's what's happened here. The heavenly father has come back through the words of Zephaniah, and he was bringing punishment for their sins. Now, I can tell by the looks on your faces, I think I can say there aren't more somber words found anywhere in Scripture than the words we find of condemnation of the people of God who had become the people of Baal than we find in Zephaniah. Well, here's what's interesting. When the people of Jerusalem heard this indictment, when they stood there and listened to the preacher Zephaniah, there isn't within the entire book one mention of defense. There isn't one person that stood up and said, oh, no, that's true. That's not true. We're not guilty of that. I suspect that's because they knew they were guilty. They didn't have a word of defense. Have you ever stood dumbfounded and say, you know, I don't have anything to say in this matter. I can't offer even an argument. That's where they were. I suspect if there was any sound emanating at all from these people, it might have been some sobs of regret when they heard the word of God being spoken to them. Well, let me cheer you up this morning. The story doesn't end there. Thank God. At a key moment in history, when all seemed lost, and it seemed that Jerusalem and Judah were so far down in the ditch, they could never dig themselves out There was the convergence of the lives of two godly men. One was the prophet Zephaniah that I mentioned to you. And the other was a new king, a young king by the name of Josiah. Those two men decided that everything was going to change. Surrounding them was a small remnant of people who had stayed loyal to God despite the mess. That is a precept in the Bible that you'll find all the time. No matter how bad things are. Right now in Iraq in the Middle East where Christians are are being kicked out of their homes and and being persecuted, there's always a small remnant that are staying strong. That's who these people were. In chapter 2, verse 3, it says two things about them. It says, they walked humbly and they did what was right. So here we find Zephaniah, the prophet, and then you find Josiah the king, this small remnant together, And everything's going to change. God has his hand upon this matter. One little factoid about Zephaniah, uh, there was royal blood flowing through his veins. As far as we know, he is the only prophet that descended from royalty. His great-great-grandfather was Hezekiah himself. And I believe that gave him access to the throne of young Josiah. And I believe that it was he who mentored Josiah through this time. So here we have a combination of immense power. The prophet of God who says we're going to change things. The king of God, the the king who sits on the throne that says we're going to reform this matter. And these two leaders, with the help of that little group of people, took on all those forces of evil. It's a remarkable story. I think it would make a great movie. It says that that they knew that the, the idolatry was everywhere. It was ubiquitous. It was in the high places of the city. It was on the roofs. It was in their homes. It was in the markets. It was even in the temple. There were were venues of sexual idolatry everywhere. This was a train wreck in slow motion. And I think that the people of God, when they heard Zephaniah's words, said, you know what? We're losers. We've lost a lot here. They had lost their sensitivity to sin and their walk with God and their peace of mind. They had lost their moral compass. They had lost all hope. It seemed like they were totally discouraged. But when all seemed most lost, something unexpected happened. It doesn't follow the script. You wouldn't expect this to happen in this passage. God shows that Old Testament picture of a New Testament concept called grace. And he does it in a beautiful way. Isn't that just like God? On your outline, the principle says, even when we hit rock bottom. Even when we hit rock bottom, God finds us and places us back on our feet. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to stoop down to those that he loves, and he's going to pick them back up. Well, how does he do that? You heard Andrew read this morning. And this will be our second reading of this beautiful passage. Verses 14 through 17. Suddenly, when you get into the middle of chapter 3... When you're thinking, could things get any worse? Things shift. There's a change. At the first time I read this many years ago, I thought, is this a typo? Is this out of place here? Because God was bringing this, this condemning punishment upon them. And then suddenly, in verse 14, he says, Sing. Look what he said, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Are you kidding me? After after they heard the scathing, denouncing, condemning, indictment of their sins, he's saying, sing. He says, I want you to sing. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, verse 5. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let your hands grow weak. And then we get to verse 17. And verse 17 says this. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over you with singing that's not a mistake the prophet says God is singing over you now I struggle to adequately describe that magnificent passage of scripture it's an unexpected turn of events it sounds like it doesn't belong here And so when you get to that passage, you understand from chapter seven, from chapter three, verse 17, the number one on your outline, which says this, he permanently is my God. Notice how he begins. He says, the Lord, your God, he personalizes it. It had been a long time since they had heard God expressed like that. God is my God. I'd forgotten about that. That might've gone right over their heads at first. It might've been hard to connect. You see, when you belong to God, you belong to God forever. He's never going to let you go. When you come into the family of God, you can't be snatched away. You don't lose your family identity. So he begins very personally. He said, let me remind you of who I am. It's like Zephaniah got a microphone and a large bow speaker and announced throughout all Jerusalem, God saying "Is yes, I am your God. Remember me? I am that God with whom you have had faith. So here it is, the great God of the cosmos who, who, who they had stiff-armed. He says, I am, I am your God. Now, if you feel out of a relationship with him this morning, remember he's your God. If you know Christ as your Savior, remember he's your God. And if you feel distant from him this morning, let me tell you something. He didn't move. He didn't move. When you, are not, you or I are out of relationship with God... We are the ones that moved. He's there. He says, I am your God. And then he says, this is just as incredible. After he says, I am your God, he reminds them of his position. He says, I am your God. Look at verse 17. He said, in your midst. Are you kidding me? In my midst? What's he saying there? In other words, he's saying, I'm present with you, despite you. Despite what you've done, I am present there with you. This alone is the crown jewel of all the gifts that God can give us. This great warrior God that he describes himself as, El Shaddai, the mighty warrior God, is always our God, and he's always present with us. Our position in his family isn't conditional upon us. Now, that might have been the case with your family, that you grew up, grew up with, that love was conditional upon you doing this or that or jumping through this hoop or that hoop. But he was saying to them, he said, he said, I am there with you. Remember who I am. I'm your personal God. I'm in your midst. And you and I will ultimately lift our hands because of the Lord's presence in our lives. He integrates us. And we new covenant Christians can say, his Holy Spirit abides in me. In the Greek, it says, "The Holy God pitched His tent inside of us. He lives within us." Uh, Paul said in Romans 8, 1, 2, He said, "Therefore, no condemnation exists for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death." So now, Zephaniah had their attention. They had just learned that, despite their deplorable condition, their God was there. He was in their midst. And then he says, I'm going to save you from this. In other words, you're going to get out of this tight spot. So despite their moral corruption and pride and wickedness, the great mighty God is going to save them from their annihilation. There's one other thing that he mentions there. You'll notice there that he says, I will quiet you. The English word quiet you. With my love. And that word quiet connects with the word peace in the Hebrew. It is, I'm going to give you peace. It's been a long time since you've had peace. That sweet shalom that only God can give. Number two says, he enduringly delights in me. He enduringly delights in me. He takes delight in us with gladness. He says to the people of Judah, and he says to you this morning, by the way, you are the object of my delight. Does that mean that sin has no costs? No, don't leave here believing that. The people of Judah suffered, but ultimately they were restored and God delights in his children. You might say, oh Bill, if you've only know, if you only knew what I've done, my God would never delight in me. You want to bet? He knows what you've done and he still delights in you and he's going to save you and he delights in you and he says he's your God and he's in your midst. And then... He says this, he says, God rejoices. Well, what would God rejoice over? Would he rejoice over Victoria Falls? Would he rejoice over some spectacular part of his cosmos out there? One of those beautiful constellations that we can just get a glimpse of? No, it says, he rejoices in you. Now that Bible is full of rejoicing. But it's people rejoicing. Men rejoice, women rejoice. Children rejoice, angels rejoice. Beggars rejoice and kings rejoice. Wise men rejoice and shepherds rejoice. People on earth rejoice and saints in heaven rejoice. But what about God rejoicing? Can you imagine that? And notice what the object of his rejoicing is. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Now, I don't know... What kind of day or week, or as a good friend of mine says, century you've had so far. But I want, to know, I want you to know something. When your head hits the pillow tonight, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can be sure that he's there with you, he's in your midst, he wants to bring you the quietness of peace, and he rejoices over you. Number three says this. He everlastingly rejoices and sings over me he sings over me. That isn't a typo in your Bible. The idea of God singing over a bunch of knuckleheads like us is hard to fathom, is it not? Wouldn't you agree? God sings over us. God bursts forth in divine celebration when he thinks of you. My first memory of my father was when he would he and I would take a nap together and he would rub my forehead and sing to me. And when I had learned that my heavenly father sings over me, my heart leaked within my chest. The idea of God singing singing over us demonstrates his great love. He continually loves his children. This is one of the most beautiful and majestic passages in scripture because it talks about the very heart of God and what he holds for you. Now, I must admit it, I love music, and I love singing. I sing in the shower, I sing at home, I sing in the car, I sing at church. But the notion of God hovering over us when he looks upon us and sings over us, it's almost too much to imagine. In counseling, I've seen this verse lift the spirits of downtrodden people, people that have been made to feel worthless or feel that they've fallen too far. Those that have relapsed, those whose society is marginalized, those that feel like my rebellion is so malignant that I'll never again walk with God. Not so. God sings over us. He values us. And it's as if that great truth for you and me can be experienced in our lives from the time that we're born into the family of Jesus Christ until we pass into heaven with him. So, even though you know God personally this morning, you might think that you're you're flying a little bit upside down right now in your life. Let me remind you, he's in your midst. He's in your midst with love. He is your God. He wants to bring peace to your life. He rejoices over you. He delights over you. And then, he does the most remarkable thing that I can imagine our great God would ever do. He sings over us. One day, the King of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to return, and he's going to place an exclamation point over that singing. What a great day that will be. But until then, until that moment, allow me to invite you to enjoy the presence of your God in your life, that personal Savior that you have through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we fail you many times. We often lack the ability to understand how you would allow us to come back to your throne and seek forgiveness, but you do. And Lord God, you seek our communication. You want to hear our voice. You want, Lord God, for us to come to you and enjoy your sweet presence. And most of all, Lord God, we want to recognize this morning how deeply appreciative we are of your love of us, despite us. So, Father, this morning, I pray for every person here. I pray, Father, that whoever is here that is troubled this morning, that they'll they'll allow that trouble to be met and fixed through the power of God this morning. I pray, Lord God, that those that don't feel worthy of being sung over or those that don't, don't feel that they could ever understand the notion of you rejoicing over them. Would open their hearts and understand that you're there for them. You're in their midst. You want to quiet them with your shalom. And yes, Father, you want to sing over them. I want to ask you to keep your eyes closed now. I'm going to ask you this. If he's spoken to you this morning, if This reminder of how much God loves you has touched your heart. I want you to make a commitment in your heart today to move toward him. Not away. He hasn't moved. He's there. He's one permanent God that never, never, ever leaves us. I'm going to ask you to experience his love this week at the deepest levels. Remember how much God loves you, and that will get you through every day, every struggle, every deepness of water that you're trying to swim through this week. God's name we pray all these things. Amen.